All right, so we have been going through John's gospel. Uh, you notice I've kind of picked up the pace. We covered all of 17 in one week, then 18, a little bit into 19. And today, I'm going to kind of slow down and just focus in on the crucifixion. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Roman soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. You know, there are a number of movies that can make war seem exciting. And then there are the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, which shows the terror and the horror of the Normandy invasion, where thousands of soldiers run directly into the line of, of machine gun fire and fall over in a bloody ocean. We call that D-Day, but when we zoom in on D-Day, it really was a day of horror. Likewise, we can do the same thing when we sing about the cross, talk about the cross, explain the mechanics of the gospel. We can wear the cross as jewelry. We can decorate our walls with a cross. But when we zoom in on what happened, it was horrible. Today, we're going to do that. We're going to zoom in on crucifixion. Now, it says, so they took Jesus and he went out. Right in between here, from where they took him and they went out, there's some scholarly speculation that right there, where that 17 is, is where the horrible flogging took place. Now you say, wait a minute, didn't, didn't we already talk about Jesus being flogged last week? Well, yes, in verse 1 of John 19, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. But some believe that, that this flogging in verse 1 was a first lighter beating that Jesus took before he was formally sentenced, right? And, and it may have been actually a ploy that Pilate was using. Let's bloody him up, and then maybe they'll let him go, right? But then he endured a second, more severe flogging that took place after he was formally sentenced. Regardless of, of, of what you believe about that, Flogging involved the hands being tied to a post. You know, in different movies and things, they show it in different ways. But in all probability, he was 
tied to a post, hands over his head, so you're virtually hanging on the post, making uh, your back very taut. And two lictors, who are whippers, would have a cat of nine tails, wooden handle with nine leather straps, and on the end of those straps would be sharp pieces of metal or bone or stone, and with all force they would rip the back off of the victim. Sometimes so severe that the inner organs would be exposed and some would die from the beating alone. So that's probably what took place right there. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or place of the skull. There they crucified him. Let me um, read from an article. It's called The Science of Crucifixion by Kathleen Shire. She's a PhD from Azusa Pacific. Um, Here's what she writes. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 3 and 400 BC. It is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by humankind. It was, in my opinion, thought up in the cauldrons of hell. The English language derives the word excruciating from the word crucifixion, right? Acknowledging it as a form of slow, painful suffering. So she describes it this way. They nailed his hands to the patibulum or the, the cross beam. And she says the Greek word for hands includes the wrist. The wrists. It is more likely that the nails went through Jesus' wrists. And the reason they think that is um, if, if a human body is hanging just with, with nails through the hand, it's going to rip. But if it's through the bones, through the two bones in the wrist, through the middle of them, then that would enable the body to, to hang. The huge nails, seven to nine inches long, um, the huge nail damages or, uh, or severs the major nerve to the hands, the median nerve, upon impact. This causes continuous agonizing pain up the arms. Once the victim is secured, the guards lift the patibulum. Uh, so, so this view is that it's not one big cross, but the, the upright is already in the ground, and then the cross beam is what he would be laid on. They nail the hands to the cross beam, and that is then lifted and secured to the upright. As he he is lifted, Jesus' full weight pulls down on his nailed wrists and his shoulders and elbows dislocate. In this position, Jesus' arms stretch a minimum of six inches longer than their original length, which is interesting because 1,000 years before Christ was crucified, David wrote Psalm 22. And in it, he says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. And different theories about, was he talking about something in his life? Well, we don't know of anything that went on in David's life where his bones were dislocated, but um, clearly this applies to what's going on with Jesus on the cross. She goes on to write, It's highly likely that Jesus' feet were nailed through the tops, as often pictured, with the knees flexed approximately 90 degrees. The weight of the body pushes down on the nails. Again, the nails would cause severe nerve damage as it severs uh, the artery of the foot. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet to to exhale. So sometimes you see in movies, he's just passively there talking to the people. It is an excruciating up and down, pushing on the feet, pulling on those arms just to get breath in and out. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. The decreased oxygen causes buildup of fluid around the heart and lungs the collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues uh, essentially suffocate the victim. So they're in agony the whole time, slowly being suffocated. When the Apostle Paul writes about the gospel, a number of times... He says, don't be ashamed. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he writes to Timothy, and he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And the the testimony is the, the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about the shame of the gospel. And I ask myself, why this constant call to not be ashamed to proclaim the gospel. And in the center of the gospel is this gross, horrifying thing called crucifixion. So, so here's, here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. I want to ask the question, why the constant call to not be ashamed of the cross? Okay, so reason one, or or, or here's a better way to put it. Why might somebody be ashamed to talk about the cross? Number one, it's a horrifying event to have as the center of one's religion. I mean, just having read what happened, you know, we have to read about it. In Jerusalem, people were crucified all the time. Just the mention of crucifixion, they knew the horror of it. And Paul says, it's the center of our religion. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Don't shift the focus away to more relevant issues. More relevant. 
preach Christ and him crucified. You know, they, they have Roman etiquette books from early on that remind people to never mention crucifixion in polite company. It's too terrifying to talk about. And Paul says it's the center of what we should talk about. There's a book by uh, a woman named Fleming Rutledge called The Crucifixion. And she writes this, bodily functions uncontrolled, insects feasting on wounds and orifices, unspeakable thirst, muscle cramps, bolts of pain from the severed median nerves in their wrist, wrists, scourged back scraping against the wooden stipes. It's more than any of us are capable of fully imagining the verbal abuse and other actions such as spitting and throwing refuse by the spectators, Roman soldiers, and passers-by added the final touch. In our men's study, we've been reading through 1 Corinthians. And you start to piece together what's going on. The Corinthians were judging Paul for his preaching. They were saying, come on, Paul, step it up. You need to know what your audience really wants to hear and give them what they want to hear. Kind of, kind of the first appeal for a, for a know your audience, give them what they want to hear approach. Okay. So Paul says this. He says, yeah, I, I, know what, I know what people want to hear. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. I know what they want to hear. And I know what you want me to preach because it'll draw a bigger crowd, right? But we preach Christ crucified. There's that word. A stumbling block. Okay, something Jews stumble over. They don't want to hear about it. And it's folly, it's silliness to Gentiles. I, I know how to draw a crowd. And they go, it's certainly not with your message. And Paul goes, that is my message. Christ in him crucified. What does it mean when it says Jews demand signs? Well, signs is another word for miracles. The Jews, they wanted a conquering Messiah, not a conquered Messiah. They wanted a king who defeats Rome, not one who was defeated by Rome. They want a power king, not a humiliated, humiliating king. We want a Messiah who will bring God's wrath on our enemies, not a Messiah who endures God's wrath on our behalf. So Paul, give him a power message. That'll bring him in. A message about us being on the winning side. You got to know your audience, Paul. And Greeks, they're into wisdom. They're somewhat intellectual. 
So if you want to win the Greeks over Paul, you've got to impress them. Quote Plato and Aristotle and Euripides and the Stoics and the Epicureans. Impress them with, with, with uh, incorporating Greek philosophy. And they'll all go, hmm, he's deep. Paul, this, this rather inappropriate, embarrassing story about God becoming a man, being stripped naked and nailed to a piece of wood in front of his mother and other people, that's not a good story. Right? That's, that's not going to grow us. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. I know it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. You know, not, not only was Paul's message unimpressive to the Corinthians, he says, my delivery was not that impressive. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, and when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except here it comes Christ and him Ooh, there's that ugly word again crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling sweating <laughs> And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but on, in the power of God. I don't want your faith to rest on how clever the speaker is and, and, and add all the things we do to try to impress people in church today. If that's what your following of Christ is based upon, it's not a supernatural work. It's just marketing. It's just knowing the culture and having a little marketing savvy and getting numbers. Okay? Paul is saying that that shameful word and Christ's shameful death, and this embarrassing topic that polite people don't talk about is the center of our message. So, so here's a question for, I would say, the church in America in general. Do we really preach Christ and him crucified, or is it Christ sanitized. I think it's possible to, to preach and teach for years, even right out of the Bible, and still miss it. To, to, to get the crosshairs off center, yeah, we sing about it and we, uh, we, can, we can, you know, give the formula, we're sinners, Christ died on the cross, he rose from the dead, believe in that, you're saved but without really understanding what God had to go through to save us. So 
One reason we can be ashamed of the gospel is because it's a horrible event that's at the center of the gospel. Even the Corinthians were like, this isn't going to sell. Could you shift it? Maybe talk about ethics. Maybe talk about the latest cultural trends. Maybe even talk about Christian duties. No, Christ and him crucified. Don't be ashamed of that. Now, a second reason we can be ashamed is this. Focusing on Christ and him crucified, it forces us to face the horrifying reality of our sin. If we make the cross central to our teaching and everything we do, we have to come to grips with this word. Paul says, he's, he's going to summarize the gospel. And he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, don't, don't get the focus off. This is of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That word for. As we look at the ugly thing that, that happened on the cross, if we understand what this is saying, we have to do the equation in our head and say, what he was doing, we should have received ourselves. People don't want to hear that. That means we're really bad. That message is not an attractive one. And you know what? Not only do they not want to hear that they're that bad, frankly, they don't feel that bad. So you're wasting your breath, preacher, talking about sin in a culture that doesn't feel that sinful. They may, may feel lonely. They may feel anxious. They may feel desperate. But do they feel like sinners before a holy God? So change the focus to their felt needs. That'll draw them in. Many have gone in that direction all over the map. But I would say this. Rather than starting with what we think will cleverly draw people in, what if we start with this premise? Sinners don't know what they need. Because sinners are blind and deaf and dead. So if we start with what they think they need, of course they're not going to say we need a bloody cross. Why would that even cross their mind? So, here's the solution. What if preaching the cross of Christ is not only the solution for sinners who are under conviction of sin, but preaching the crucifixion of Christ is the very thing that brings about conviction of sin? 
We preach Christ and him crucified and say he got what we deserve. And yes, the Holy Spirit has to be opening eyes and ears and hearts. And the person hears about Christ and him crucified and they say, maybe I've been taking my sin way too lightly. You know, when... uh, the concentration camps were liberated after World War II. American troops rounded up the citizens in the towns where those concentration camps were, and they made them look at what was there. They made them look at the bodies and the ovens and the graves. There are, there, you, can do, you can Google this on, on YouTube. There's black and white film of some German citizens. They're, they're, they're walking to the camp, and they're talking, and they're smiling. And they go in the camp, and people are fainting and weeping. Why? Because they looked at the result of what their government did, and... In many cases, what they did by turning their head. I mean, they smelled the the, the flesh burning, but they didn't want to ask too many questions. Looking at the results showed them their own complicity. And when we look at Christ and him crucified, one thing that it should do is show us that that's how bad our sin is. Because he died for our sin. Third reason. I don't think we want to full force preach the gospel. Or we can be ashamed of the gospel. Is because it forces us to face the perfect holiness and justice of God. You know, the book of Romans says our problem is we know God exists, but we don't want to deal with the true God, so we suppress that truth and we replace him with an idol. And an idol isn't just a little statue you bow down to. It can just be a remaking of who you think God is, a more comfortable God in your mind. I've mentioned this before. There's a whole slew of of, uh, call it progressive Christians who look at the cross and they go, whatever was going on there, Jesus was not dying under the wrath of God. Why do they say that? Because their God is not a wrathful God. They think if he's a wrathful God, he can't be a loving God. We choose a loving God, not a wrathful God. Okay. Some of them have even said that view of the atonement that Jesus died in our place under the wrath of God to pay for our sin, that that's divine child abuse. And, and I just need to remind us in John 10, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. It's not divine child abuse. 
He is willingly going to the cross out of love. Now, if this is what we truly deserve, maybe we've been taking God's holiness and his justice, justice meaning what a holy God requires for rebellion against him, maybe we've been taking his holiness and his justice Far too lightly. You know, in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul brings up this interesting dilemma. He says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And, and propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Right? So God put forth Jesus as a, as a propitiation. You receive that by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. That word could be translated justice. His righteous righteous justice or his just righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, what, what that means is Old Testament believers, like David, who sinned, and everybody else in Israel who sinned, they're in heaven. How can God be just? See, we ask this question. How can God be loving and send people to hell? Paul's struggling with this. How can God be just and holy and righteous and bring David to heaven? God must have compromised his holiness. See, we struggle with the opposite. How can a loving God send people to hell? Paul's saying, how can God be righteous and have sinners in heaven? And he goes on to say, it, what what it? Christ is a propitiation, was to show, show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the reason Christ needed to die on the cross under the wrath of God was to show that God can't just blink and bring sinners into his presence. His holiness and his justice demanded the propitiation on the cross. For a lot of people, that's just way too complex. It's embarrassing to talk about a God who requires that. So let's just focus on other things. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. You know, one reason there may not be a lot of salvation going on in the country is we're not preaching the gospel. We're ashamed of the gospel. So we can be ashamed of the cross because it's horrifying, because it reveals our sinfulness, and it reveals God's holiness. But the last thing it reveals is God's love. 
It shows the love of God for us. But God, there's that word again, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If, if we move the, the crosshairs off the cross, people say, well, we just want to focus on the love of God or on ethics or morality or how to live the Christian life better or parenting or, you know, na- name all the topics, okay? Let's, let's move the crosshairs off the cross because that portrays a more loving God. I think if we move the crosshairs off the cross, we miss the love of God. Because it's Him on the cross and not us. God shows us His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, has died for me? On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Lord, may we never be ashamed of the cross May we not run after down rabbit trails and things that we think are more appealing. But Lord, at the center of your word is a crucified Savior who died in our place to pay for our sin, to absorb the wrath of God, to demonstrate love. And Lord, then you were raised up three days later, showing victory over sin and death and wrath. You are an amazing God. Thank you for the cross in Jesus' name. Amen.